Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Daniel Keyes Moran. Daniel's science fiction novels, The Armageddon Blues, Emerald Eyes, The Long Run, and The Last Dancer were published in the late 1980s and early 90s. Now, after many years, Moran has just published a brand new novel, The Great Gods, The Time Wars, Book One. Dan, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe The Great Gods? Uh, if they are familiar with my writing, uh, and most people won't be this, at this late date, uh, it's set in the same universe as the previous novels. Uh, the Long Run is a story about Trent the Uncatchable, a thief and rebel and social activist. Uh, uh, I'm only a little kidding about social activist. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a character who drove a very popular novel. Uh, the Long Run is, I think, the highest rated science fiction novel on Goodreads. As far as, I, as, far as I'm aware, there's no interface for you know checking scores but against all of the adult books i'm aware of it's i got a 4.54 and it's up there in in the top several hundred novels on goodreads so still getting reviews to this day still getting you know fan mail and so forth so that book has lasted very well uh the new book is set in the same universe it's space opera uh and i don't you know i'm i mean that very respectfully to the to the field of space opera i you know there's good and bad of it, like anything. And I, I tried to write a good one. I published it uh, Monday before last, I think. And it sold, you know, uh, uh, several thousand dollars worth of books, both directly from me and off of Amazon. So it's getting some notice. And uh, the reviews have just been stellar. I mean, you know, couldn't ask for better. 4.9 uh, actual ratings and the reviews from the readers have, have been raves. So I'm really happy that it's uh, it's gone very well. That's great. Now we just need to to get the word out to all those people on Goodreads. <laughs> that would be that would be ideal. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm curious. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the Great Gods? Not really, to be honest with you. The what you have to understand about these stories, um, I, I've used this comparison a fair amount, and people who are not familiar with the works will be skeptical of this. It, it's Tolkien. It's the science fiction version of Tolkien. I started writing these stories when I was 13, uh, and I have built a universe that, you know, they, I, you can describe this as an arrogant description, and I, I won't quibble. It's as detailed as as Tolkien and more so than almost anything in science fiction. Uh, I started at about 13. I had two series going at the same time. One of them was a, a story about uh, Trent the Uncatchable, which became The Long Run. And the other one was a story about a character named Camber Tramodian. And the Camber stories uh, had never been published up until now. Uh, merging those two sets of stories together is what created what's called the tales of the continuing time. It's a science fiction universe where there were time wars, the time wars stopped and the continuing time began. Almost all the stories are set in the continuing time. Uh, so as far as impetus goes, I just was looking to build something that felt real to me, uh, that felt like there was real detail behind it, real 
consistency in the universe, um, a, a sense of, of consequences, right? The things that happen in one story were going to impact the evolution of the universe as, as it went forward. Uh, that's what I was trying to do. Readers generally seem to think I did it. Uh, so that's a impetus asking me what what that 13-year-old <laughs> kid thought. I, I, I'm 60 years old these days. I've retired. Uh, my, child, my children are all grown, um, doing very, very well. I, I can brag about them for 10 minutes if you like. Uh, but it, it permitted me, the fact that they're doing well, permitted me to retire into a writing career. So I can tell you what I'm trying to do today. That that I can answer. It's hard for me to tell you what that 13 year old was trying to do. Sure. Well, well, someone someone who hasn't followed your career over the years, or possibly looked you up after reading one of the novels that was published by Bantam, and as I said mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, and connected with you on social media, <clears throat> they may wonder why was there a big break in publication for you between the novels that you published in the 80s and not 90s, and now in 2023, The Great Gods. So, so what children. was kind of your what it was kind my, of it was my children? I married a woman, Amy Stout, who was my editor at Bantam Books. Uh, my wife is the editor who originally purchased these books at Bantam all those years ago. Uh, and I married her uh, 25 plus years ago, and she had three children from a previous marriage. So I had what Amy has called the zero to 60 course in fatherhood. I went from, you know, being a single guy to being a father of three kids in, in practically, you know, in, in no time, essentially. Uh, and then we had two more children ourselves, you know, biological children mm -hmm. and raising the five kids. And they're all they're all my kids. I, I love them all. There's It's not love. Family is not about biology. It's about sure. love. I, I've been blessed with five great kids. But we lived in West Los Angeles. Uh, which is a very you know expensive place to grow up. The kids went to superb schools, and they've all you know like I said, I'll, I'll fall into bragging very fast. Uh, they have all done very very well. Um, you know, careers that are in in great shape. I've got one child still left in college, but he's doing really well in school, studying physics. Wants to be an oceanographer, uh, and I expect will be because all of them have pretty much ended up doing what they set out to do when they were young. And uh, I had to support our, my family of seven. My wife, you know, five children is a full-time job. My wife mostly raised our kids. Uh, I, I won't say I was uninvolved, but I was basically, a, a, you know, providing the, the funds for them to live in the nice place and go to the nice schools. It was just overwhelming. Uh, and anybody who's raised, you know, that number of children knows this. Sure. My days were, 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 were full. I kept thinking I was going to write. I, I didn't intentionally marry her, Amy and, you know, get the three kids and then the two more and, and think that I was planning to retire, but that's what happened. Uh, doing the right job of raising the children was, you know, it, it, it consumed every waking moment. Um, Amy got up early in the morning and put and got the kids, you know, up and to school. Most of the time I would drive them to school. Um, and then I would go to work and Amy would stay home. She didn't really work, you know, all those years. 
and I work in the sense of, you know, go to a job and make money, but she did raise children, which is a full-time job. And sure. anybody who says otherwise doesn't understand what, what, how involved that can be. And I would come home at the end of the day and she would go to bed a couple hours before me and I would put the children to bed, you know, in the, and she'd be exhausted after having a long day of dealing with five kids. And I'd put the children to bed and then I would fall over and get six or seven hours sleep. And the next day we'd both get up and do it again. Uh, that went on for a couple decades. So then that, that's the short, the short answer. And I could go on. It's a life and it, it was our life and it's what we did. Absolutely. And it's a, a wonderful life. Well, I, I'm curious when you, when you were working and raising kids, were you ever thinking about fiction and novels or scribbling notes to yourself about the continuing time? The f Since I created the continuing time, which is 46 or seven years now, uh, there has been one 10 year stretch where I really didn't write, didn't barely read that first 10 years. The children were small in the first sure. 10 years after I married Amy, the children were small and I didn't write and I didn't in what I've done in the continuing time, almost all of that 47 years is build background and build, you know, what Tolkien did with the Silmarillion very much, uh, build, uh, consistent environments and places and, and timelines and character lists and births and deaths and all, all these sorts of things and stories. Right. And I would outline stories for 10 years. I didn't do any of that. I, I was a different person. It was, it was a little shock. It was shocking to me how hard and how much energy was involved. The zero to 60 course in fatherhood. I didn't know what I was getting into. And, but I learned and we did a good job and the kids all turned out well for 10 years. I didn't write, didn't outline, didn't do any of the things that I've done the whole rest of my life. The kids got into their teenage years and required a little bit less, you know, oversight and, and, uh, you know, moment by moment. Uh, attention. And I started writing again, but I was slow. And then the youngest child, my youngest boy went off to college last year, just about a year ago at this time, uh, went off to UC Irvine. And suddenly I really, we both really did have time. My wife has started writing a novel. I finished the great gods, um, and, you know, got that out into the world. And I've started turning back into who I was before I raised children. But it took getting the five of them out the door before I could really focus on it with all my attention. Sure. Well, well you once wrote that your tales of the continuing time would include 32 novels. I'm curious, what's the plan as it stands today in 2023? Depends on how long I live. <laughs> uh, would I still like to write those 32 books? Yeah, I would. Uh, I, you know, it was a good trade. <laughs> the five kids are, are, are worth, you know, all not, did not, not just do any book I might've written, but all the books I might've written. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with the trade that I made in the life that I've had, but I'm 60 years old. Hey, I think I said that earlier in the interview. If I'm productive another 15 years, I'll finish most of that story arc most of the the core stories out of those books that I sketched out when I was a kid. Uh, if I'm productive another five years, yeah, you know, if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, there's uncertainties in the world. 
But if my energy is good and my attention is good, I, I should get most of the, not the 32 books, but most of the core stories of those 32 books uh, should uh, should get done. I, I, I hope. <laughs> I'm sure looking forward to it. I'm planning to write about a quarter million words a year. Uh, I think I can do that. I think that's within my, my wheelhouse. Maybe I'll write a little more than that. But if I do a quarter million words a year and I manage to write for the next 15 years, uh, I, I'll get most of the way through it. I'll certainly hit all the highlights. That's great. Well, you talked earlier about um, coming up with this kind of idea and this kind of overarching um, uh, timeline for the continuing time when you were 13, you were writing in, in a notebook. Yep. I wonder if you could go back to that 13-year-old kid. What what originally got you interested in writing and what made you start writing stories way back then? God, I have no idea. It didn't happen with any of my kids. None of my children, and, you know, they they grew up in a in a world full of writers. They they've known a lot of, you know, my wife was an editor at Phantom Books and knows more writers than I do and I know a fair number. And got to see how hard it is to be an artist. And it, it's it's tough. I mean, even people who don't have five kids, you know, with, with some exceptions, it's, it's a tough life. So none of them were tempted. One of them wrote a couple of stories, but for the most part, not, you know, they, they were more interested in leading decent lives than they were in the risks of an artistic, you know, career. Uh what attracted me at 13, first of all, I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, that me at 13, I just, I loved to read. I had been reading compulsively, you know, forever. Uh, and I wrote, you know, started writing when I was eight. Uh, a story, Third Degree Magic. It was a book about me and my best friend, Steve, uh, going off into a fantasy world like Narnia, I assume. I, I really don't, I lost the story. And I don't really remember anything about it, except that the, the bad guy was called the Diablo, which at eight years old, I thought was pretty goddamn clever. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, not like just calling him the devil, Diablo, not necessarily everybody was going to know what that meant. I thought of eight. Uh, and I liked, the, I liked writing. I, it, it was, I liked reading. I read, as I said, compulsively, you know, I'd written, I'd read, I don't know, a thousand novels probably by the time I was, was 13, 14. Uh, I, I read, you know, I didn't do much else. I got involved in sports later in life and, uh, and found that I really enjoyed basketball and have been playing basketball ever since till the, till today, still play basketball occasionally. But then at 13, I was very bookish. I was very quiet and I just sat and consumed books and then tried to write things. And I was terrible. But at, when I was 13 years old, I wrote a story called A Day in the Life of a Telephone Pole, where aliens had were invading Earth, and they were hiding inside telephone poles. And the city began a beautification campaign to knock down all the telephone poles, and the aliens thought they were being attacked by the humans, so they fled Earth and didn't come back. That was my first completed story that I thought was saleable. And it's, it's in my it's in my collection, uh, a freeway in my backyard. If anybody out there wants to go grab that collection, I put that story into the into that collection. So you can see what I wrote when I was 12 or 13, I guess. Uh, my father took that story. My father bought me. He was a very, very bright man, uh, had a uh, bachelor's degree in psychology, spoken, read and spoke Russian. 
um, had been a Marine, you know, and was a communist. So, you know, it was a full, you know, red-blooded American Marine and also a real honest-to-goodness communist who was born in 1930, uh, grew up during the Great Depression and embodied some complexities, let's say. My dad took that story and sent it to Galaxy Science Fiction magazine. Uh, why that one in particular, I don't know. It's the one he knew of, I guess. He wasn't really a science fiction guy. But he, he typed it up and sent it off for me. And at 13, I like, wow, you can do that. You can send stories to people and they will and they'll buy it and publish it and make you rich and famous. Uh, you know, in a, in a Snoopy level sort of understanding of, you know, there's a Snoopy cartoon where he's typing up on his on his little typewriter and he says, you know, dear publisher, you have misunderstood me. I meant for you to send me fifty thousand dollars and and publish my book. Apparently, he's had a rejection rejection letter. Uh, so I got rejection letters for the next five years or thereabouts, and but I got better. I, I sent stories out um, to Asimov's uh, George Sithers at Isaac Asimov Science Fiction Magazine was the first person to write back to me and say, you know, you have pro you're terrible, but you have promise. <laughs> keep <laughs> keep writing. And uh, I sold him when I was 18 years old. I sold him a story called All the Time in the World, uh, which became the novel The Armageddon Blues. So from 13, being unpublishable and writing really, really dreadful stories uh, to 18, I wrote something that was professional and saleable to a, a major market science fiction magazine. So I got better. But people get better at things that they do compulsively for a long time. Sure. Well, I'm curious, what was your writing process when you were working on the great gods? Are you someone who writes from a detailed outline or do you have kind of a general, general idea and dive into the narrative and see where it takes you? How does that my, work for you? My first book when I was 16 or 17, I think I started it when I was 15, uh, was a Western, an alien invasion Western. And it started off with, also, I've got the manuscript to the still, it's in, in, in boxes and storage. Uh, a dreadful, dreadful book. But it started off to be a short story about a man playing poker with aliens. And I didn't have an ending for it. I literally, I just had the scene right in my head. You know, here's the aliens playing poker. Here's the, the you know, Brett Maverick from Maverick. Uh, I think I just rubbed the serial numbers off a little bit. And there's Brett Maverick. You know, it was fan, it was fanfic, <laughs> science fiction fanfic with Brett Maverick in a science fiction novel or science fiction short story. But I didn't know how it ended. So what I did was I kept coming back to it and fleshing it out and throwing a little bit more plot in there. And then the main character vanishes and his son has to find out what happened to him. And it turned into a, a novel about, about his son. And I wrote, I think, 500 pages or thereabouts of single spaced on a manual typewriter, on a manual typewriter, 500 single spaced pages of novel about that character because I did not know how the book ended, how the story ended. And eventually I wrote myself into exhaustion and said, the hell with it. You know, it's done now. My next novel, my next long story before I started it and, and with everything I have done since, I know exactly how it ended. I knew where I would, didn't know all the scenes in between, sure. but I wrote the ending. And to this day, I write the ending uh, and I write toward the ending. So um, that, that's essentially, that's my process. I don't want to have another story 
spiral out of control on me. So I give myself room to innovate on the way to the destination, but I always have written the last scene before I write the first scene. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That's great. Well, what are you planning next? When will you publish your next novel? My next novel is due in May of this year. Uh, it is a, a collaboration with Steve Perry. Steve Perry is the author of the of the Matador novels. Uh, if you're if you're familiar with Steve, he's done a lot a fair amount of tie in work. But I think the Matador, uh, he, you know, Star Wars. I wrote some Star Wars fiction myself back in the day, and Steve probably his best selling book was I think Shadow of the Empire, uh, which is a Star Wars book. So he got New York Times bestseller out of that. But his own books, which also sold quite well, just not as well as the Star Wars stuff are the Matador series, starting with The Man Who Never Missed, uh, Matadora, and then it goes on for, for 15 or, or more books, uh, you know, building out and fleshing out his universe. So in some ways, we're similar writers. And I really liked what he had done with that series. Seven or eight or nine years ago now, uh, we started talking about a novel together. And I was still, I had small, you know, relatively small children at 12, 13. And, uh, and I was slow. So we've been picking at this novel for quite a while uh there you know it's it's got about fifty thousand words in it right now and in the next month i anticipate writing another 15 to twenty thousand words uh and finishing that book and then spending another you know getting it cleaned up and proofed and, and so forth and then publishing it right about the beginning of may that book is the first book of a trilogy uh it's set not quite on the continuing time but in that same fictional universe uh, on a different timeline, you know, it's time travel and alternate universes and things like that. Uh, 
And I'm really, I'm, you know, I'm pretty optimistic about that. So that book's in fair shape. I think we will have it out on May 1st. The sequel to The Long Run, which is my you know, best-selling and most popular book. Uh, the sequel to The Long Run, I wrote one book in the last 30 years. That was The AI War, book one. And I'm publishing in August of this year, I think, AI War, book two. It's mostly done. I'm not, you know, making wild assertions that I'm going to write 70,000 words uh, between here and there in two different books. Both of these are sort of, you know, history, historical work that have been sitting on the shelf for quite a damn while. Sure. Uh, that book, the sequel to The Long Run, will be out, I believe, right about August. And then there is a crime novel called A Symphony in Black. And A Symphony in Black, again, is a, it, one of those books that I've, Started work on as a young man and abandoned, and there's quite a lot of text sitting there. And I'm going to finish that, I think, by Christmas. So I've got four books coming this year. Uh, probably actually six total. There's also a collection of essays and a child, a children's novel about my dog, <laughs> my dog Charlie, uh, called uh, The Adventures of the War Dog Charlie and His Faithful Servant, Fat Sam. And Fat Sam is a handle I've been using online for 40 odd years. Gotcha. Well, since you were published by Bantam Books for those early novels, the publishing industry has changed dramatically. And I know that you're now you're now indie publishing uh, your novels via ebooks and paperback. What has been your experience so far with indie publishing with the publication of The Great Gods? Well, I did an indie publication of AI War Book One in 2011, I think it mm -hmm. was. So that's 12 years ago now. So I got one novel finished in 30 years. Um, and you know, that was, and it was difficult that finishing that book was difficult simply because, you know, this is the sort of stuff I, I never intended to stop writing, but having children slowed me down, my God, so much. So that book was published as an indie book back around 2011 and it sold very well. I mean, I've made, you know, not huge money off it, about 30 grand over the, over the 12 years, uh, but what I know is that that $30,000 is more money than I'd have gotten from a traditional New York publisher. So I reached fewer people. That is unambiguously the case. Uh, it got pirated a whole bunch because that's the, you know, people pirate books these days. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't get in, e ego involved at that level. People are going to do what they're going to do and you can't, but you've got to, you've got to figure that into your, you know, as you're trying to figure out what you're going to sell things for and how much they're going to cost and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I got a ton of fan mail for that book. And I look at the fan mail and I'm like, did, did like one person in 10, you know, who, who bought this book, send me fan mail or, you know, or one in 20 or one in 50 or one in a hundred or whatever the number was. What I know is that a lot of the people who sent me fan mail didn't buy that book through any traditional means. So I sold $30,000 worth of books. I think it probably reached 30 or 40,000 people. Uh, at a guess based on the amount of passing around and, and fan mail that I got for it. Are my current books doing that well? Uh, this the, the one that I just published, I made about $6,000 off of. I mean, I just being transparent with everybody about where we are today in the publishing industry. Made about $6,000 off it in, in the first week of, of sales on Great Gods. So I don't have, you know, I, I had a nut that ran $150,000 to $200,000 a year when the kids were little and had to go to school and needed braces. And, you know, it's expensive to raise children. But they're all, you know, earning good money now. Uh, I got two, two boys who work in, uh, one at NASA, one at SpaceX. 
Uh, I've got two daughters, one of whom is a, a big data uh, genetics uh, with a genetics degree. And the other one is a risk analyst and she's doing really well. And I got the one boy who's uh, a, 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 a national gold medal champion in archery for UC Irvine. They're all doing great and they're not costing me as much as they <laughs> used to. So I worked in tech. I was a, an enterprise architect for, you know, 25 years and made good money and made enough money to support my children through their college degrees. And now we're on the other side of that. I think on 50 or $60,000 a year, that won't be a nice life, but I think I can make that. And I think my wife and I will be fine on that kind of money. I hope to make more. I hope to, you know, have better sales than that. Uh, we're going to start advertising, great God, very shortly uh, on Amazon, direct uh, advertising on Amazon. And then we're going to go wide on a variety of platforms, Kobo, uh, the Apple ebook store, Google ebook store, uh, Smashwords, yeah, eight or nine others, I think, and do advertising that, uh, and put up my own bookstore as well on a, on my website. And advertise so that the landing page takes you to that website and then you can purchase either directly from me where I'll get hundred percent of my sale price <laughs> versus the 70% roughly that you're getting from Amazon and, and all of their competitors. I think that there will be a living there. I'm not too worried about that. If there's not a living there, if I find that I have wildly misjudged my audience, uh, I'll go back to tech. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's always going to be money to do that for people who can do what I do. I, I've been writing SQL Server, Microsoft, it's a Microsoft database platform. I've been writing SQL Server code daily for 30 years. Uh, there will always be a, you know, a, a, a niche there that I can go back to if I have to. But I hope not to have to and then you know, and make a living as a writer. I don't need 200 grand a year to take care of me and, well, me and my wife. That's great. Well, I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own novels or short stories? I tend not to give advice is the, is the short version of mm -hmm. that. Uh, it, it's always struck me as arrogant and I am arrogant in my own life and in my own, you know, like I think I, as good a writer as, as most people out there. Uh, and I get fan mail. It seems to confirm other people agree with me about that. Most writers today starting out are going to have a different experience than, than I've had obviously, right? Things have changed. They've changed so much. I, I think you need a compulsion to do it because with some very, very mo modest exceptions, uh, you're going to be at it a long time before you start making any money. So if you think you're going to go be a writer and that this is going to be your profession in the immediate future, almost always that's going to be untrue. Like I said, you know, rare exceptions. They're uh, Christopher Paolini, I think is his name, you know, like 17 year old kid wrote a book about drag and blew up. Uh, that does happen, but it's not what, you know, 99 and 49s worth of, of writers are going to experience. You have to enjoy work for the sake of the work. And then if you happen to make money on top of that, God bless. That's a, you know, it's a joy to have people send you money and say, you're, you're so charming and wonderful. And your story was so great that here have money for doing something that you want to do. Uh, it's a very nice place to be, but you've got to have thick skin. You've got to have a very, very, you know, deep commitment to doing the work. 
it's not something you're going to half ass around with. And, you know, because every, a lot of people want to be writers, your competition in a commercial sense, at least, you know, not in a personal sense, your competition is just yourself. You want to write a better story today than you wrote yesterday. Uh, but commercially your, your competition is out there. You know, people who are, are writing very, very regularly and publishing and building audiences uh, you have to understand the size of the task that you are, are setting out for yourself. If you do understand the size of the task and you're a very bright person who writes well and you're incredibly energetic and can can push for years at a time, perhaps with without, you know, uh, immediate success. God bless when it's when you are successful at this and I've been modestly successful when you're successful at this. It's wonderful. You know, it's great. You watch the money show up in the bank. You watch the the fan mail show up. You know, you can go to Amazon and look at the reviews for the great gods. Uh, they are, you know, I don't even, I, I don't read reviews as a general matter. I try to keep them out of my, out of my head. Because if you start paying attention to what other people say about your stories, uh, I, I think you can make mistakes that way by giving them what they want rather than what you should be writing. So I, but I, but I, I admit I did when for, for great gods, I was stripping, uh, quotes for advertising as a, just a commercial matter. I waited until it had been up for a while and I went and stripped all of the, the various quotes to use in, in, you know, in commerce and they were great and that's wonderful. It, it really is. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I sat there and read it. It's got 4.9 stars on, on Amazon and the reviews are just, oh my God, thank God Dan Moran is back writing again. You can't, you can't do anything other than feel good about that. Those That's are wonderful great. moments. And they're, they're most of what writing is about at the level of, are you going to be happy doing it? Sure. Well, how can people find out more info about you and your novels and your public publication plans for future novels? Right now, probably the simplest thing to do. If you're on Facebook, I'm on Facebook with the name Fat Sam, F-A-T-S-A-N, Fat Sam, all one word, just, just as it sounds. Uh, I'm on Mastodon, uh, uh, also as Fat Sam. I have a personal website called Morangelis, M-O-R-A-N, and then G-E-L-E-S, like Los Angeles, morangelis.com. There's nothing there right now. I have just sort of launched out on this writing career. And I'm going to be building a website on that URL. Um, there's nothing there yet, uh, but there there will be some. So I would say that's probably the three best ways to get in touch with me if you just want to like touch base. Uh, there's a I've got a Patreon, uh, Daniel Keys Moran on. Uh, I'm sure you can search and find it on Patreon.com. Patreon, 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 oh, yep. Patreon. Yep, and uh, that's a. Also, you know, obviously, uh, those guys, I thank you to, if, if any of you uh, subscribe, you know, Patreon supporters are are listening to this this interview, uh, thank you so much. It, we had a death in the family of a young person a couple, about a year and a half ago, and, you know, rocked our worlds. It was, it was as bad as the death of a young person would be, as you would expect. Caused us all sorts of stress and trauma. My Patreon supporters, you know, who are sending me $700 a month, um, just sat there and waited for me to get my shit together and come back. 
And then I did. And they, and you know, and nobody ever said a damned word to me about, sorry, I beg your pardon about that. Nobody said a word to me about the, uh, about the delay, about the time in which I was completely unproductive. Uh, my nephew, Kevin, who I, uh, my sister mostly raised and who I, uh, tried to be a good dad to because he didn't have, you know, his mother or his father in his life. My sister and I, my, and mostly her, I don't mean to claim credit for the boy. Great kid. Just a wonderful boy. Died of COVID about a year and a half ago. Uh, pa- Patreon, the people on Patreon and my all my various readers just backed up and gave me time to get better and get over it. And thank you all so much. Um, it, it made a huge, it made a difference. I was, it was such a shock to the system when Kevin died that I was really not sure what I was going to do next. And the fact that all those people for a year and a half hung with me, well, I didn't do a damn thing. Uh, it, it was a claim upon me, upon my attention that, you know, like oh, people really are still waiting to hear from me again. So I got back to writing and that's been good for me. You know, it's, it was, it was healing to write again. Uh, and you know, the, the wounds like that, you're, you're, you're wired up. Both of my parents have passed. We are wired up to lose our parents. It's, it's horrible. It's a bad stretch when it happens to you. If it happens to you when you're young, it's really bad, but it's a, it's, it's what happens. And we're all designed to survive that. You're not supposed to have to, to bury your, you know, children. Uh, but we are all alive and on the other side of that. It's been a year and a half and we're getting on with our lives. My readers really, and on some bad days, on some very bad days, people would, you know, touch base, you know, uh, hope, you know, hoping to hear from you soon and would like to see that next story that you were working on when all of this happened. So, and that was the great gods. That was the great gods that I was working on when Kevin passed away. So I got back to it. And that claim upon my attention was part of why I got back to it. I knew people really were waiting for it. And the, re- the, the, the response to it has been superb. So I, I owe a lot of people. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Daniel Keyes Moran, science fiction writer and author of the brand new novel, The Great Gods, The Time Wars, Book One. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Dan, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 